This morning, as we begin, I want to invite you to pray with me. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. My all-time favorite sitcom is Different Strokes. Different Strokes tells the story of two orphaned African-American brothers, Arnold and Willis, who are adopted by a wealthy white businessman by the name of Mr. Drummond and by his daughter, Kimberly. Different Strokes shows us how two different groups come together, two different strokes come together to form a beautiful and loving family. Throughout the series, when Willis, who is the older brother, would do something that was surprising to the point of shock, or would say something that was surprising to the point of shock, Arnold, the younger brother, would respond with a question. And this question has gone down in pop culture history. Arnold would respond and say, what you talking about, Willis? What you talking about? Now, I share that with you this morning because this scripture passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, it makes me ask the question because it is surprising to the point of shock. It makes me ask, what you talking about, Jesus? What you talking about here? Now, in my family, we have a word. It's called hangry. And hangry is when you get hungry and your blood sugar level drops and you become irritable. And sometimes that irritability spills over into anger. We call that hangry. What's surprising in this passage of Scripture is Jesus certainly appears to be hangry. He goes to this fig tree because he's hungry. He's looking for figs. He does not find anything there. And Jesus does something totally unexpected. He commits a violent act. He curses the fig tree and it immediately withers up and dies. This is surprising to the point of shock because this certainly doesn't comport with the Jesus that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek, love your enemy. This cursing of the fig tree is the only negative miracle that we have in the Gospels. All the other miracles that Jesus performs are about blessing and bringing about life. But in the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus brings about a curse and brings about the death of this fig tree. And the disciples, the clueless, hapless disciples, instead of asking, what is going on here? Instead of asking, what is the meaning of this event? 
they simply ask the question, which really isn't the relevant question. It's not the important question, which is a recurring problem of the disciples. But they ask the question, Jesus, how did you do this? And Jesus, maybe because this is the first morning after the triumphal entry, that this is the first morning after Palm Sunday, and Jesus has immediately before him the cross. Maybe it's because of that, or maybe it's because every time Jesus tries to share a parable or he tries to do something and explains the meaning to the disciples, they just don't get it. It goes over their head. For one reason or another, Jesus doesn't try to explain the meaning of what he's done. And he simply settles to answer the question that the disciples raise. And that is, how did he do it? Craig Keener, who is a professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, recognizes what most people recognize in this story, and that Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is a physical parable. It is a physical sign. It is pointing to something beyond itself. What I want to do this morning is I want to spend some time reflecting upon the meaning of the cursing of the fig tree. What you talking about, Jesus? What you talking about? If you read New Testament scholars and you read the commentaries on the cursing of the fig tree, again, they all recognize that this is a physical sign. This is a physical parable. And many scholars uh, connect it to the cursing, I mean, the, the uh, driving, up, uh, driving out of the money changers, the cleansing of the temple that takes place the day before. And so many New Testament scholars think that what's happening here is uh, some sort of sign of the coming destruction of the temple that's gonna take place by the Romans in AD 70. Others believe that this is Jesus giving a warning to Israel, the barrenness of, of Israel. But what's fascinating to me is that in the first five centuries of Christianity, as the Christians then read this story of the cursing of the fig tree, they, something, they saw in it something more significant, more profound, and for them, something that is at the very heart of the gospel, something that is what is front and center to the events of Holy Week. When the Christians of the first five centuries read the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter three and the redemption of humanity in the gospels, they noticed a number of literary parallels. And this was significant for them. One of these is obvious to us. In Genesis chapter three, we have a man, Adam, who through his disobedience, brings sin and death into the world. And he does this in the Garden of Eden. But in the Gospels, we have a second Adam. We have Jesus Christ, who reverses the disobedience of the first Adam. And he does this in a garden as well. It is the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And it's by his obedience in the garden that the disobedience of the first Adam is reversed. 
and he brings about redemption and he brings about life for humanity and for creation. We also recognize in Genesis chapter three that it isn't just man, it's not just Adam that brings sin into the world, but there is a woman that is involved as well, Eve. Eve listens to the voice of the serpent. She listens to what the enemy is saying to her. And as she's listening, unbelief is conceived in her heart and bears forth fruit of disobedience. In the Gospels, we see that there is a second Eve. We see that there is another woman. And when she hears the message of Gabriel the angel, faith is conceived in her and it leads to her obedience. Of course, this second Eve is Mary. And she says to Gabriel, let it be unto me as you say. She gives her consent to become the mother of Jesus Christ. It is her faith and obedience that reverses the unbelief and the disobedience of the first Eve. We also see in Genesis chapter three that there is a tree that is at the very heart of the fall, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then we see in the gospels that there is another tree that is at the very heart of redemption. As a matter of fact, Paul in Galatians chapter three, uh, verse uh, 13 says, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. He's speaking about the cross. So it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil that gets us into our trouble. And it is going to be the tree, the cross that gets us out of it. You may remember after the fall, as a part of the curses that come upon humanity, there is the cursing of the ground. And God says to Adam that what's going to come forth from the ground is going to be thorns and thistles. You may remember that when Jesus was crucified, there was a crown of thorns that was placed on his head. You may remember that his body was placed in a tomb. It was placed in the ground. And when the apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about it as a seed that is planted in the ground that will bring forth fruit, that the resurrection of Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection to come. So the blessing of the ground reverses the cursing that takes place in Genesis. And then, of course, you may remember that immediately after the fall, Scripture says that Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. And they tried to cover their shame. They tried to hide their shame. What they did was they took fig leaves, the largest leafing tree in Palestine, and they sewed it together to try to hide and cover their shame. It is not by accident that at the very beginning of Holy Week, right after the triumphal entry, that the first thing that Jesus does is that he curses the fig tree. I want you to know that this physical parable, this physical sign 
has everything to do with reversing and putting to an end what happened in the garden with the fig leaves. Now, to help us to see this more clearly, we have to go back to Genesis in the opening chapters of Genesis. You may remember in Genesis chapter one, we are told that as human beings, we are created in the image of God. I wanna be very clear about how significant this preposition in is. Scripture does not say that we are made with the image of God, that somehow the image of God is an appendage, that the image of God is something that is added to us. Rather, what Scripture says is that we are made in the image of God. What Scripture is saying is that we are the image of God. Who we are and what we are is the image of God. It is not something external. It is not something extra. It is who and what we are. And we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that there is a grandeur and glory to being human. David, in Psalm 8, verse 5, describes it this way. He says that we as human beings have been created a little less than God. A little less than, in Hebrew, Elohim. And that because we are created a little less than God, we are crowned with glory and honor. Paul picks up this same theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, where he says that we as human beings, we are the image and the glory of God. Do you know what the glory of God is in creation? Do you know what the glory of God is in the world? It is us. We are the glory of God because we are in the image of God. We are the physical face of God in creation. It is this understanding that helps us to probe more deeply into Paul's statement that many of you know in Romans chapter three, verse 23. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oftentimes the way that we understand Romans 3.23 is that there's some sort of objective standard. There's some sort of law that God has established and we have fallen short of it as human beings. That's not what Paul means in Romans 3.23. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short in our sin of what it is to be human. We sin not because we're human. We sin because we are less than human. We have fallen short of what it is to be the glory and the honor of God. We've fallen short of what it is to be in the image of God. Oh, my sisters and brothers, there is a dignity, there is a glory, there is such a grandeur in being human. We are the glory of God. Genesis 1 and 2. But we come to Genesis chapter 3. 
And one of the things that you see that ties together the creation of humanity in Genesis one and two with the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter three is this idea of shame. At the end of Genesis chapter two, we see that Adam and Eve are naked in the garden and not ashamed. But after the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden, scripture says that their eyes were opened and they see that they are naked and ashamed. There are a lot of problems that are brought into our lives as a result of the fall and as a result of sin. And if Jesus Christ, and I love my, my favorite verse in scripture is, is Matthew chapter one, verse 21 in which the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If Jesus is going to save us from our sins, he has got to save us from the things that we normally talk about. He's got to save us from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin. He has got to save us from the power of sin that as a result of the fall, we live enslaved to sins described so powerfully in Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25. The good that I know to do, I do not do. That which I do not want to do, I find myself continually doing. It's the power of sin. As a result of the fall, we experience not just the guilt and the power of sin, we also experience the nature of sin. That we come into this life with disordered desires not rightly ordered love, disordered love. We have a lot of problems as a result of the fall, as a result of sin. But I want you to know in Genesis chapter three, the focus is not really on the guilt and the power in the nature of sin, although it's there. From a literary perspective, the focus is placed upon shame that what the fall in sin brings into the picture is shame. And so, because of sin, you and I are ashamed. And what does Adam and Eve try to do in the garden with their shame? They put together an apron of fig leaves to try to hide their shame. And as a matter of fact, when God comes to them, they run away from God. Whatever is going on, let me say this, with the cursing of the fig tree, with this physical parable, with this physical sign, it has to do with the undoing of what happens with shame and our attempts to try to hide our shame with fig leaves. That the cursing of the fig tree is about doing away with the fig leaves that we find in the fall. The heart of what's happening this week and Holy Week is about addressing the problem of shame in our lives. Shame. The English word etymologically literally means to hide oneself, to cover oneself. This is exactly what Adam and Eve do. After they, they try to hide themselves, they try to cover their shame 
but they are unable to do so. The thing about shame, and this is what psychologists tells us, and this is the problem of shame. Shame is an intense feeling. Sometimes it's a painfully intense feeling that comes from believing that because of who we are and what we are, we are undeserving of love. We are undeserving of acceptance. We're undeserving of belonging. We talk about in the Western church, we talk about the guilt of sin, but guilt has more to do with that which is external to us. It has to do with the consequences that we suffer from what we do. Shame though is something that is more internal. It has to do with not what we do, but it has to do with who we are and what we are. And because of who we are and what we are, we believe we are undeserving of love, of acceptance, of belonging. Please hear me this morning. In our Western tradition, we like to talk about the problem of pride that's associated with sin. We talk about the problem of self-righteousness we talk about the problem of self-glorification, of self-exaltation, that a result of our hubris, we try to usurp the place of God. And that is a problem of the fall. But I wanna tell you, there's another problem of the fall that we often don't talk about in the church. And it's just the opposite of pride. And it is the problem of shame. And the problem with shame is that it brings with it self-denigration, self-loathing. And it's just the opposite of pride. We don't desire to usurp the place of God because out of our shame, we don't want to exist at all. Our problem in life isn't just pride, but it is the problem of shame. It's possible, my sisters and brothers, for you to have some degree of contentment, some degree of happiness, some degree of satisfaction with our pride. But I will tell you that there is no comfort, there is no satisfaction with the experience of shame. All we experience with shame is varying levels and degrees of misery. The more shame we know and experience in life, the more miserable we come. With shame, one of the great problems of shame is that it robs us of our joy. It steals our dreams. It hollows out our relationships with each other. It hollows out our relationship with God. And most devastatingly, it destroys, it kills, it annihilates our hope. The hope that we can be loved, the hope that we can be accepted and find a place of belonging. And our response to this intense feeling 
of not measuring up, of not being worthy of belonging or being accepted is isolation. We run away from others. We run away from God, just like Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter three. Now, shame comes about in our lives from a number of different sources. We experience shame as a result of our sin. We experience shame because of things that we have done in our lives that don't measure up to what we think we should be or what we should do in life. But shame also comes into our life from what people have done to us. People have inflicted shame upon us. And then there is also this source of shame that oftentimes in our life we cannot identify. It's there, it's cloudy, it's, it's murky, but we can't quite place our, our finger on it. But there's something deep inside of us that thinks that we are unworthy of being accepted and belonging. We don't know quite where it comes from. I will tell you that it comes as a result of original sin. There is a shame that is passed down to us from the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And one of the problems with shame is not just self-isolation, but shame drives us to self preoccupation. It makes us self-centered and self-focused. In order to hide ourselves and cover ourselves from shame, the amount of mental, emotional, and spiritual energy that it takes saps everything out of us. So we become self-focused. One of my favorite church fathers, a man by the name of John Chrysostom in his homilies on Genesis. He takes note on Genesis chapter two and three. He notices in Genesis chapter two that Adam and Eve are in the garden and not ashamed. And then in Genesis chapter three, after the fall, they are naked and ashamed. And he says, why are they ashamed? His answer, because in Genesis chapter two, Adam and Eve are so focused on the other, the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of creation, that they do not see that they are naked. But immediately after the fall, their gaze is no longer outward, but it is turned inward and they are naked and ashamed. My sisters and brothers, many of you, problem isn't that you're paralyzed by the guilt or the power or the nature of sin in your life, although some of you are. Some of you are paralyzed in your life because of the shame that you carry. My sisters and brothers, I bring good news to you this morning. It is not by accident that the First event, or one of the first events that Jesus does in Holy Week is the cursing of the fig tree. Because what Jesus is doing on this moment is bringing judgment and bringing an end and bringing death to our shame. He has come to set us free from our shame. 
And so we have the anticipation of it at the very beginning of Holy Week that leads us to Calvary. And please, yes, Jesus dies on the cross to set us free from the guilt of sin. He dies on the cross in order that we might be reconciled with God. But he dies on the cross to set us free from our shame. Because we are the image of God. Because of our sin, because of the fall, we have brought dishonor and disgrace to God. That's addressed on the cross. But not only is that addressed on the cross, but also this internal sense of shame that we carry. So that shame is crucified on the cross. Uh, There's another early church father, a man by the name of Gregory of Nyssa, who in his great catechism asks this question, why must Jesus die on a cross? And Gregory of Nyssa's answer is this, He must die on the cross uh, because the cross, crucifixion, is the only form of capital punishment in which a person dies with their arms stretched open wide. And Gregory of Nyssa says that this is an eternal testimony to us, that God stands before us. Our Lord Jesus Christ stands before us, ready to embrace all who would turn and come to him. Nyssa recognizes that one of the problems of sin is that sin whispers into our ears that because of our sin, God no longer loves us. God no longer wants to have anything to do with us. And then you add not just to what sin whispers in our ears, you add to it what the enemy, what the devil, what Satan will whisper in our ears. That because of our sin, And because of our shame, God doesn't want to have anything to do with us. And for Gregory of Nyssa, the crucifixion is the ultimate physical sign of God's love and his embrace of us. Uh, Interesting, in North African, in early North African Christianity, as a part of confirmation, a part of people preparing for baptism and being discipled uh, in Jesus Christ. One of the things that happens in North African uh, catechetical uh, Christianity is that before a person is baptized, uh, they take fig leaves and the person who's getting ready to be baptized tramples over the fig leaves, doing away with our shame. And then in North African Christianity, they divide into their sexes, male and female, and they strip down naked and they go into the waters of baptism. And when they come out of the waters of baptism, a white robe is placed upon them, representing Galatians chapter three, verse 27, where Paul says, those who have been baptized are now clothed in Christ. Fig leaves could not deal with our shame. Not even the animal skins that God put together to cover Adam and Eve could deal with our shame. But it is only when we put on Jesus Christ that we once again 
experience what it is to be the image of God, what it is to be the face of God in the created order. And shame is done away with. I love uh, Revelation chapter three, uh, verse five. Revelation chapter three, verse five talks about that when we stand uh, before God, Jesus comes and he brings us before the Father and he speaks our name to the Father. The restoration of our dignity, our glory, and in our honor. I mentioned to you that the early church, when they read the fall in Genesis chapter three, and they read the gospels, they saw these literary parallels. There's one other, and it's the last thing I want to share with you this morning. In Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve have their first meal that's described in the scriptures, after they have their first meal, the eating of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, it says that their eyes were opened and they saw their nakedness and were ashamed. Do you know that the very last, I mean, the very first meal that takes place in the gospel after the resurrection of Christ, the first meal is found in Luke chapter 24. Immediately after the resurrection, Christ has a meal with his disciples. And at that meal, as the bread is broken, the writer Luke says, and the eyes of the disciples were opened and they saw Jesus. I want you to know this second meal does away and reverses the first meal. My sisters and brothers, as you go into this week, I want you to know that this week isn't just about the guilt of sin. It's not just about reconciling you to God. It's not just being setting you free from the power of sin. I want you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ is about setting you free and liberating you from your shame. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.